Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 32. This is our review of the Discovery episode, season 2, episode 6, The Sounds of Thunder. I'm your chief engineer, Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. And welcome back to our ship. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. I feel like it's like love boat all of a sudden, like, welcome aboard. <laughs> I think you have more fun with this because you know you don't have to edit it. <laughs> oh, maybe you're right. <laughs> wow, this is a fun episode. Sounds of Thunder. Yeah, we finally got to see another red pulsar, but a lot of other things happened too. Shall I try to summarize it for our listeners? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll pick up any slack that you, you miss. Okay, well, let's see. Very briefly, the B-plot was Dr. Culber just coming to grip with the fact that he is in a new body. That got very little coverage this episode, but mostly it was... Saru. It was another Saru episode. We have a new red pulsar directly above his home planet, which he has not been back to since he left 18 years ago. So they go back and they get some more information about the ruling people of that planet, the Ba'ul. When they arrive at the planet, the Ba'ul are threatening them to leave because they're very hostile. Saru, with his newfound courage, just mouths off to them and then beams down to the planet to save his people because he and Michael have already been down there to tell them that, oh, we're looking for this red angel. And he met his sister who thought he was dead. So the Ba'ul intercept the, intercept the transmission, intercept the teleportation, and they capture Saru uh, and his sister. And back on the discovery, they discover through the historical data of the sphere that they encountered a few weeks earlier that the Kelpians used to be the ruling class and nearly drove the Ba'ul to extinction until the roles were reversed. So the Ba'ul are purposely keeping the Kelpians from evolving. And so the Discovery and Saru decide to emit a sonic blast that instantly evolves all the Kelpians on the planet. The Ba'ul respond by trying to commit genocide. The Red Angel shows up and stops it. And yeah, so everybody evolves at the end. And now the Kelpians have to demonstrate that they are not going to drive the Ba'ul to extinction again, nearly, like they did once before. Is that it? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, you forgot about the uh, Tar alien. Oh, yeah, we actually got to see a Ba'ul, and it kind of looked like... But actually, you're right, that is an apt description, because the alien comes out of this pile of ooze, almost like Skin of Evil, the episode Armus. in which Tasha Yar died. Yes. Yeah. Armus, and then they also reminded me of the Sheliak. Ooh, good call. Yeah, that was a fun episode. Uh-huh. In fact, it almost reminded me more of the Shell. Well, I don't want to say more, but... Uh... It reminded me of both. Star Trek Next Generation liked to use its its um black trash bag alien a lot. <laughs> yeah, except these aliens do seem to have some sort of a humanoid figure with limbs and red glowing eyes, at least. Yeah, it, it was um reminded me of uh well apparently it actually was a horror a man who does like horror creatures who designed these, which is cool. And, uh, I swear I've seen something similar in uh like Japanese movies or tvs i've seen with their face being all pointy reminded me of some i can't think of any specific examples but that does sound consistent with those aesthetics and however more so than the visual i was really 
put off by the audio. I found it really hard to understand these aliens. You're not the only one I saw say that. Like I could, but I also had my audio cranked up. But I saw a lot of people had to turn closed captioning on just so they could hear what these aliens were saying. Yeah, they applied a lot of different filters and effects to the alien's voice to make it hard to understand, very echoey. And I would have turned on captions, except I usually watch Discovery on my PlayStation 4, and I have still not figured out exactly what the controls do with (laughs) that app. So I don't really want to fiddle around in the middle of seeing an episode for the first time to figure out how to turn on captions. I hear you there. I hear you there. The whole bubble ship scene, that was a total redress to the transporter room. What do you mean? It, it, they just like, they gutted the transporter room set and, t- and covered it with black wallpaper <laughs> and called it the bubble ship. Oh, the room where they were being kept prisoner? Yeah, it was, a to- it was totally the transporter room set. Huh. I didn't know that. When you, if you watch for it, you could totally see it, especially with the lights in the background. They just took the covers off the fluorescent lights <laughs> and, and put everything black. Yeah. Well, that's one way to save a buck. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love I saw a quote about this episode that I loved. It was in true original series tradition, a Starfleet crew shows up, messes with the locals, and leaves them to figure it out. Kirk would be proud. Oh yeah. And that is something <laughs> I definitely want to talk about with you because it is shocking to me just how flagrantly Discovery disobeyed the Prime Directive or the General Order One or whatever they're calling it in this era. Well, uh, they they I mean, even in that time period, they're all kind of like, um, I don't want to say like, what's that? I don't want to say cowboy justice isn't the right term, but it's like the Wild West. And captains are allowed to make their own interpretation a lot of time. And even Michael makes a comment. He's like, well, this is up to the commander to kind of make a decision on this because they actually have seen technology. So I, it didn't bug me. A lot of people that one bugged, but it didn't bug me at all. It felt weird. I won't say that, I won't, but it, it didn't bug me. Sure, I can see the, that Burnham left it to the captain's discretion whether or not they should make first contact with the Kelpian race. That I don't have too much issue with. The resolution to this episode, though, was for them to conduct basically a medical experiment on the entire planet without their permission or authorization, causing a race to evolve beyond the ruling class, which is completely contradictory to what we've seen in so many episodes. Like, I think it was the Enterprise episode, Dear Doctor, where there was a virus infecting the ruling class and not the subservient one, and they decided not to cure it. Or mm-hmm. in DS9, when they decided not to get involved with the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, they could have very easily stopped a more powerful alien species from devastating this other alien race, and they didn't. But here, on the Kelpian homeworld, they do. I outside of the different timelines, like but still it's yeah, that's one of the great discussions. Like Voyager gets blasted for their prime directive violations all the time. It's like that's one of the things the audience gets to pick apart uh and talk about like uh philo- philosophize philos talk about <laughs> a lot. It's like these captains their different approach to this. Do we interfere or not? And what level can we interfere? And this is another one. And this also reminds me of the movie Insurrection, when they discovered that they had inadvertently inserted themselves into a civil war, because this was all one alien race from one planet arguing over their land. Mm-hmm. But then also the Baku did have warp technology, so did they inter- yeah, they interfere, but did they- does it break the order? I'm not sure what to take there, but yeah, this, this, is a, this is an interesting one. Like, like, 
<laughs> maybe you know we also have the benefit of the season isn't over yet you actually had uh, some great foresight watching the short tracks where you said that you thought that this was all going to tie back in together and it did here we are back on the kelpian homeworld yeah it didn't matter uh so hey Cool. That's good to know. And for those who didn't see the short tracks, they did sort of summarize it in about 10 seconds of flashbacks, which when you and I watched the short tracks, we were like, nothing happened here. This could have been told in 10 seconds. And they did. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like you did not need to see the short track other than humanizing the people or or um, uh, Kelpianizing the people. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of that medical experiment that they conducted on the planet, I have fallen behind on listening to Feminist Frequency Radio, but I saw on their summary of their latest review of Discovery that they were freaked out by at the end of the episode when all the Kelpians walk out onto the beach and they're all basically holding their ganglia. Yeah, that was a little weird. <laughs> Ugh. Why? So, Ugh. I mean, I mean, okay. I mean, Saru did the same thing too this thing that was holding on my fear now i'm holding my physically holding my fear <laughs> yeah but it, it sort of reminds me of like my, my cousin has three girls and the girls are pretty much all grown up now but in a drawer in my cousin's office is a little jar with all the baby teeth ah <laughs> like oh. what are they gonna do with those ganglia are they just gonna like hold on to them or like fossilize <laughs> them f- bronze them and frame them and hang them Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that's discussions for them to have <laughs> i hope we're not part of those discussions yeah uh yeah i don't need to be there for that uh but you you called it holding their fear and did i understand correctly the medical scan of saru said that his fear response is being suppressed suppressed or going away something something along those lines i mean i just watched it again this morning i don't remember the exact terminology they had because that doesn't strike me as a good thing i mean yes he previously lived too much in fear but fear is very important it keeps you alive and for him to have none of it at all i think that explains his belligerent bridge behavior oh no absolutely he wouldn't get off he wouldn't get out of the captain's chair he was very very uh belligerent yeah no no that was totally is it yeah, I think Pike cut him some slack due to them going to his home planet and cutting and hitting a little close to home, literally. But I think in any other circumstance, he would have been supremely dressed down for his behavior. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of that moment, uh, Pike and Burnham, to an extent, have these amazing concern eyes that they use a lot. This look that they, this empathetic concern look that I just love. <laughs> Are they looking at each other? No, no, no. It's usually whatever subject it is. Like this one, it was Saru. But they had this, like, they do this concern eyes really well, uh, <laughs> which I thought was like, really cool. And they kept doing it. But I also love in that exact same scene where Saru is like chewing out the ba'ul on the bridge, Michael gives Saru this look like, oh, thanks a lot when the ba'ul start uh, charging weapons. <laughs> Yeah, and those ships, oh my gosh. It's impressive that an alien species that I think they said just got warp technology 20 years ago would have such huge ships that so supremely outclass the, the Discovery. Well, we don't know the outclass, but we do know that they are ridiculously large. Like, like yeah, it's like 20 years ago. Like, you had these ships that reminded me of the Tholians too. But uh, that was weird. That was weird. I thought that was a little odd. And, and the way that they all lined up and like they would start falling out from behind each other like you don't know how many there are it's almost like a like a a, a musical number or a clown <laughs> car or something 
Yeah, that was that was an interesting effect. I was like, wow, this is these ships are so advanced. Or they felt advanced. And yet they couldn't stop Saru from hijacking their audio transmitter. Yeah. I mean, I thought that as soon as they saw what he was doing, they would have just like said, shut down communications. But no, they, they couldn't. I, that was odd to me. Yeah. And then, then there was a thing where I wasn't sure if they had intercepted the transporter beam from Saru when he was going to the planet or if he got to the planet and then they beamed him immediately away with those little obelisk things that they do. You're right. In my TLDR, I said they intercepted, but I don't think there's any support for that in the actual episode. There's there's not support or against or in that. I can't remember what I'm looking for here, but they don't support either way. They just said, oh, they've got him now. And I thought it was like, really? And I they have transport. Well, obviously, we've seen it in the past in the brightest star, but they have, seem to have some kind of transporter technology also very quickly after discovering warp drive. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. And I, I meant to go back and double check this in the episode, but at the point that Saru beamed himself down to the planet, they were already surrounded by the Ba'ul ships. I would think that Discovery would have had shields up, uh-huh. which meant that Saru couldn't beam down. Yeah, I had the same thought too. Like, oops. Do we know how he managed that? Uh, no. Uh, I was watching and he just set a timer on the transporter because apparently he sensed that uh, Michael was coming. A minute long tra- timer. I can see like 10 second timer. Like, okay, I need time for me to get onto the transporter pad. It was like a minute-long transporter timer. He needed time to have a meaningful conversation with Michael. Yep. <laughs> but I was like, when, we, when he got kicked off the bridge, we all knew what he was going to do. I, I did anyway. It's like, of course, Michael knew. I didn't, actually. Oh, man. It's like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. He's going to the transporter room. Like, if you need to kick someone off the bridge who's hostile and they have command codes, you send them to your, like, ready room that doesn't have any other exits. <laughs> like, you don't send them on their own. <laughs> Maybe I should have been thinking about it more, but I just, I, he spent so long hanging out in the hallway, just looking at everybody running around that it seemed like it wasn't obvious to him what he should do. And so the choice was not obvious to me either. To me, it was, he's decided if he should do it or not. Cause I was like, oh yeah, he's got to go beam himself down or go to get, go to a shuttle bay. One of the two. Do you think Michael should have let him go? I mean, she did, but she needed, she needed to do something. And then she, she knows, she knows him. So like right when he left the train, I mean it, it's obvious with the timing that right when he left the bridge, she excused herself. Like she knew what he was going to do. She's that stupid. She's seen Star Trek before. <laughs> <laughs> but she, I mean, she had her phaser at him, and I think she was going to pull the trigger until he manipulated her emotions and said, "Wouldn't you do the same for your brother?" And knowing that she is looking for her brother, that was exactly what he needed to push her button. And of course, she let him go with that. And I think he also sensed that she did not want have. She had zero desire to fire that phaser. Already, she was quivering, like she did not want to. But she would have. I think she would have if she had to. But, but by the time the phaser transporter beam would have already started, it would have like gone right through him, and then like oh, nothing happened. Or he'd be like oh, and then when he beamed back into the real world, he'd fall over dead or something. <laughs> Or it'd be like that weird episode of TNG where Riker was framed for murder, where the phaser would bounce off the transporter beam and hit something else and make the whole room explode. Yeah, that, yeah. Way to go, TNG, making inconsistencies. <laughs> Who knew that transporter beams and shields were the same thing? I know, right? <laughs> I want to mention one more thing about the Ba'ul technology. Yeah. When they detect that the Kelpians have evolved, they start to commit mass genocide, which they apparently had the technology to do at any point, and yet they never did. They 
were faced with the race that nearly drove them to extinction. And they could have, for their own preservation, very easily have extinguished the Kelpians from that planet. And they didn't. They found a way to, to let them live. And even Saru said, except for the calling, our life is a paradise. So I'm not really sure that the Ba'ul are the bad guys here. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. It's like, is it Starfleet that was the bad guys here messing with the balance of this planet that had come this way over time? It's, it's a knowing what you know about the, the uh, Kelpians. Like, it's crap, but they're happy. They seem happy anyway. Until the calling part, it's a, it's not an easy answer. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, if if there was another race here on Earth that nearly drove humans to extinction, I doubt that we would show them the same latitude that the Baul showed the Kelpians. We would probably eradicate anything that threatened us to extinction. Have you ever seen? Oh, I can't remember the movie now. There was this movie came. It was a mockumentary a few years ago. Wish I could remember the name. I don't know what to look for. This comet flies by Earth. And suddenly, like, women can procreate without men. And they only make uh, other women. So, like, men are dying off. And, like, the solution eventually they come to is, like, send them all to Australia to live out their final years. <laughs> like, that, that's this whole situation reminded me of. Wow. I have never heard of that. That sounds amazing. It was a, not a good movie. <laughs> it was an interesting <laughs> concept. Like, it was sure uh, kind of, like, low budget. I wish I could remember the name of it. So you're saying that if women could, they would extinguish men from this planet? Well, that's what this movie's premise was. <laughs> Great. But eventually, like, one woman's like, but I want to try creating a baby with a guy. And they're like, well, we have to go through all these like discussions and talks and see if we can even try that. Because men couldn't procreate anymore. And they did, they, did, oh. they did science it up and help. And so the movie ends with them having a kid together. How traditional. Yeah. So are you saying that the Ba'ul and the Kelpians are going to have babies together now? I'm not saying anything like that at all. <laughs> I'm talking about the concept you reminded me of the humans. If we had something like that happen, it's like, I don't know if we would go into extinction, but we would make, not make it easier for them. That's for sure. Right. I, I'm thinking of the horror film, A Quiet Place, which came out in the last year or two, and which I recently saw, you know, the all of civilization is practically destroyed by these monsters that come from underground. And when we finally figure out a way to kill them, we don't see this in the movie, but I I think it's safe to assume that we're not going to save a couple of them. We're probably going to totally uh, destroy yeah, I them. I see, I see. Yeah, I don't watch horror movies, so I definitely did not see that. I generally don't watch horror movies either, but Susan recommended this one, our, our friend of the show, Susan Arndt. Horror movies that have quote-unquote happy endings, where like somebody survives... <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like, and uh, she gave me a list of films that she thought would accommodate my sensibilities. Gotcha. Gotcha. Anyway, back to Star Trek. Yeah. What else do you want to talk about? Um, there was a, they changed something here between the brightest star and this episode. Remind me which one the brightest star was. The brightest star is the Saru episode of the short treks. Okay. Go on. And in that episode, uh, Georgiou comes down in a shuttle that has the Shenzhou's markings on it. But in this episode, they actually photoshopped the Shenzhou markings away. Oh. Because, um, I, I had I had paused there. It was not intentional. I had to uh, swallow. But um, so apparently, uh, well, actually not apparently, in, uh, sometime this season, they mentioned that Georgiou was on the Achilles at that time. So it was weird that she had a Shenzhou shuttle. I think it was either an error that they missed it or they retconned it between writing 
and filming Brightest Star and this episode. That's interesting because Brightest Star was only three months ago or so. Normally, these sort of inconsistencies occur between entire series like TOS and TNG, not just three months of the same show. Well, three months air, but production, who knows? And maybe they filmed this all at the same time and it may have been an error. We just don't know uh, yet. Maybe they'll answer that at some kind of convention or something like that. I have wondered what the production lead time is on episodes of Discovery because they seem to have promotional materials for episodes way into the future. Like we've seen photos of Burnham and Spock together and yet mm-hmm. Spock has not shown up anywhere in the first six episodes of this 15-episode season. So I'm yeah. wondering, how many of these episodes did they film before the first one aired? Yeah. And then, you know, to me, it makes sense on a production standpoint, like to film The Brightest Star and uh, this episode, Sons of Thunder, at the same time, since you have everyone in costume already, you have the set. So I don't know. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, it, it feels like it makes sense, but I'm not a movie producer. <laughs> it does leave me wondering how the other episodes are going to tie in. So we... Haven't seen that alien girl that Tilly bumped into. We have not seen Harry Mudd. We have not seen the prisoner from a thousand years in the future. Um, that's another. Okay. You wanted to wait. You wanted to wait on this. Oh, that's right. So you had a, oh my gosh, you had a theory that I refused to hear on Twitter. And so you tweeted it in rot 13 code, which I have not yet decoded. Yes. Is this the point where you let me know what it is? Yes. It's a hypothesis, not a theory. Because <laughs> okay, besides making that distinction, I my difficulty here is I do not know how it works with some of the events and players of the season yet, such as Spock's nightmares. But my hypothesis that I'm trying to work on right now is that the Red Angel is the is Zora, the AI from Calypso. Ooh, uh, like an even more advanced form of it, because it knows where Discovery can and needs to go to. Uh, this thing looked cybernetic when we actually got to see the Red Angel, which we haven't mentioned yet. And it seemed to have an ability to do some kind of spore jump or future version of fast travel. Ooh, wow. I like that. Yeah, so. That that ties a lot of things in. How long did you have to think about that? It came instantly. I saw I saw right when it did that jump in, that's when it hit me. At the wow. end of this episode. Yeah, we got a very good look at the Red Angel this time. It, as they said in the episode, is mechanized. Uh, or wearing some sort of like an Iron Man suit. It they I think they use the phrase temporal incursions. So it mm-hmm. seems to be uh, definitely pointing in the direction of not cloaking or warping technology, but actual time travel. And it's able to emit an electromagnetic pulse or EMP of a very powerful variety on a very large scale to disable all the Ba'ul watchful eyes. It does seem to support the theory that all this technology could only be from the future. It's plausible. Like I said, I I still don't know how it fits into like the Spock thing or whatnot. But it also, just as we were talking here, it made me think like every time Discovery goes to location and the signal isn't there yet or isn't there, maybe this thing is projecting these signals somehow through time. So it discovery senses it even if it's not actually there because it's projecting it somehow through uh fourth dimensionally that's why there's never a red thing there when they get there but don't the people on the planet say that they saw it too sometimes they didn't this episode they didn't oh i thought his sister the priest said that she saw it Um, maybe she did Uh, maybe i was forgetting a line but um but i I mean that's just that's just something i thought of here just now but but still everything kind of seems to fit this whole like possibly it's zora 
or some future version of Zorai, but uh, we just don't know yet. Uh, like I said, I don't know how it fits with Spock, but it's, I can't eliminate it completely yet. How about that? I like it. We still don't know its intentions, though. Captain Pike thinks of it as a savior who you know, points them to stop calamities. And Ash Tyler thinks that this technology could be weaponized, it could be turned against us, and we're not confident that the Red Angel isn't causing these calamities. He's right. And you know, that's another thing I want to talk about. Ash Tyler, I, uh, I'm i very annoyed at his character this season because... Alright, so in the universe, whatever Section 31 did to him, like he's paranoid as all heck and thinks everything is a threat. And he's not necessarily wrong, but as a watcher of Star Trek from the outside... It's got this whole negative bent that I just do not enjoy watching. It's it's kind of frustrating. Like it makes sense for Section Thirty One to be this paranoid because they have to be, but it feels just like grating as a viewer because I just know Star Trek is like it's never this. It's never that bad. <laughs> right. I think Ash Tyler is right to be suspicious because we still don't know the Angel's origins or its intentions. So I think Pike is being a little bit naive in that respect, but at the same time. I think that Tyler, some of his paranoia, he hinted at it in this episode, how the war has still left him broken and he's still recovering from a lot. He's had a lot of transition, not only from Klingon to human to hybrid, but then he was the torchbearer back on the Klingon homeworld and had a baby. And then he had to flee that and join Section 31. I think whether or not the directors know what to do with this character or where to put him, I think he is suffering from some of that same lack of direction. And so he's always looking behind his back for somebody who wants to stab him with a bat lift. Yeah, no, it makes sense, but I just feel frustrated. I don't know, watching his scenes here, and it might make sense in the future. But here I was just like, man, just such a negative Nancy Ash. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we saw him sitting alone in the cafeteria and somebody came in to join him, I really thought and hoped it was going to be Dr. Culber. Oh, that would have been interesting. Uh, maybe it's just too soon. Because as we hinted at last week, that is a confrontation that, in my opinion, needs to happen. I think it will. Uh, Culper's going through some shit right now. He's got some, like... He is trying to come in reality of a, this whole situation where he was dead, but now he's not. And this is something that you and I discussed a little bit last week, which is that he's dealing with the fact that his matter has not been transported. It's been replicated. This is a pristine new body that was not previously his. Yeah. And he doesn't have a scar anymore, but he still has all these memories. Like that's kind of, he feels like a different person. I'm thinking, or he's not sure how to make it all feel right. Something's just off. And it shows here that he's struggling with this reality that he has been put into. Right. I mean, I don't know how important that single scar was to him, even though it may have been the incident that led him down the medical path. But I know my own body, I have chosen not to get any tattoos because last time I counted, I had a dozen surgical scars and each one of them tells a story. And I see some of them every day and they remind me who I am. I would be very confused and lost if those were gone. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> plus, plus the emotional th crap that he's gone through in the last few months, just being stuck in the, uh, the upside down. Which is something I meant to talk to you about last week, which was he was much more put together when Stamets first saw him in the first season in the upside down. And then like back then he was like, Paul, this is me. You have to let me go. Let me show you the way back to the prime universe. 
And then a few months later, when Tilly was there, he was very lost and confused and nearly dead. I'm wondering what happened in between. Um, on a production standpoint, it also makes you wonder, again, that like we talked about last time, where they just didn't know what they were going to do with him. And if they were even going to do anything with him, because we have different people at the helm. But it's also possible that maybe maybe Spore Universe Stamus wasn't actually the one talking to him. And it was a figment of Hugh's imagination. Speaking to him in season one. We just don't know. We might be retroactively putting current Culber into that position. Maybe they're intending to. And it's kind of confusing. But you're right. And there is some kind of disconnect there because of how differently they're treating the season and almost seeming to try to fix things from the first season. I've always wondered how a show like Star Trek, and this is not unique to Discovery, can have a different writer every week. Because I've read Star Trek novels where sequels are written by different authors, and sometimes they're trying to undo what the previous author did. There was one particular book I remember reading on DS9 where the cliffhanger at the end of the novel is this Cardassian getting possessed by this alien race that's possessing everybody else on Deep Space Nine. And then the very next book starts with that Cardassian being fine and him saying, good thing Cardassians are immune to possession. (laughs) (laughs) Which we know they're not. (laughs) Well, by this particular alien race, apparently they were, but it was just such a cop-out. It was clearly not where the previous author was trying to go. That's really weird. Oh, but yeah, you're right. No, I wonder what it's like in the production room if, if, uh, the showrunner is like, all right, I want you to write a story with this idea and go with it. Like, this is the things that the plot points I want to happen. You make it happen. Yeah. Whose idea was it to bring Culber back? And was that the same person who thought to kill him in the first place? Yeah. Huh. It's interesting. I, I would really like to know if anyone has any insight, please. Because <laughs> I sure as heck don't know. Should we try to figure out what the name of the episode means? The Sounds of Thunder. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, we we talked a moment before we started recording that apparently some people hypothesize it's a reference to Ray Bradbury. Uh, He's got a book called The Sound of Thunder, or A Sound of Thunder. Yeah, it's singular, and it talks about the butterfly effect, how going back in time and changing... Oh, oh, you you think that the Red Angel is from the future and is going back and changing small things to have a big impact on the future. Yeah, that's why I couldn't say anything when we were talking off off, uh, off air. That's where you think the name of the episode comes from. Oh, no, I, I think it fits that too. Oh, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Sabriel, wow. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Something is trying to fix events, whether it means fix for the better. It seems as an outside viewer to fix for the better, but we don't know yet. A lot of things going on in the Star Trek universe that to make things right. And... <laughs> I wanted to be Captain Archer traveling through time, putting right what once went wrong. Funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Um, so in Enterprise, there was Temporal Cold War guy. He was intended to be future Captain Archer, eventually. And that kind of just fits what you just said exactly, with but different act- or same actor, different character. I didn't know that. There was a Temporal Investigations novel that focused on Dolmer and Luxley, who we saw in DS9. In that novel, they did reveal the identity of future guy, but and it wasn't Captain Archer. But again, novels are not canon. Right, right. I hope that the Red Angel is not a reference to a different Star Trek series, because Discovery, for the most part, you don't need to know the rest of Star Trek lore to appreciate it. And I think if they 
weave something in for, as fan service, you and I would be titillated by it, but I don't think it would be good for the overall series. Yeah, a lot of people are hypothesizing it's Spock. I don't know how that makes sense. I thought about that too, but I didn't have anywhere to go with that idea. Uh, I mean, it would have some correlation with why he is having nightmares about it and nobody else is, but it also doesn't fit with anything else we know about this character. No, I mean, like like some people, before we even saw the Rain Angel has a feminine-ish form, people are speculating it's Spock. That doesn't make any sense because Spock is in the Kelvin timeline. Prime Spock is in Kelvin land and dies there. And so it couldn't be that far of a future Spock because he doesn't exist in this universe anymore. I don't know. I, I It's weird. I don't, I don't see that one being plausible. Now, we got the closer look at the Red Angel in this episode. Did you think it had a feminine form? Is that what we're saying? Well, yeah. Well, no, uh, there's screenshots of it. It has like, the, the suit anyway has uh, wide hips traditionally seen as a feminine thing. Oh, okay. Because everything we've seen up until now of the Red Angel made me think it was a feminine form. But in this episode, for some reason, I thought it was more male. But I could be wrong. I didn't look that closely, I guess. I also don't know how wide my hips are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I don't think it's Spock. Unless it's... I really don't think it's Spock. I just don't know how it could fit that one. Make that fit. Yeah, I don't think it's Spock either. If it isn't Spock, then that still leaves us with the mystery of why is Spock having nightmares about it. Yeah, that's the hard part. I mean, we had what we, the unconnected thing there. Spock was having nightmares of some kind of like tube-like monster. Oh, that's right. The thing that he pulled out of his iPad to attack Michael when she first showed up. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a loose end we still don't have an answer to. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. I, I'm ex- excited. Yeah, me too. I like where the season is going. I like the threads they've brought up so far, even if we don't have the all the answers yet. Of course, that's why the show is continuing. For We've only seen less than half of the season. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else about this episode that you want to bring up? No, actually, those are all my notes. Yeah. Pretty much mine, too. I still think Starfleet behaved in a very non-Starfleet fashion in this episode, but I'm interested to see what impact this has on Saru, because we had not seen his evolved state much previously, as far as his courage goes, and now we know that his head can throw needles at people. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to see that act. So that is it for this week's episode of Transporter Lock. The next couple of weeks might have a slightly different airing schedule just due to our own travel through space and time, but we will be airing our reviews of Star Trek Discovery. So stay tuned for more Transporter Lock. I'm Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel. And and actually some people came and talked on Twitter. So thank you. Keep doing it. I love it. Yay. Until next time. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at Transporter Lock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com. Wait, people are talking at us on Twitter?